What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the MMA by the Numbers podcast, where we're taking a numbers-driven look into the world of mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Jason Shandle, and this episode is UFC 273 by the Numbers. going to dig into the stats behind the fights, I'm going to pick winners, I'm going to talk about my favorite bets, and I'm really just going to get to all the numbers I can find for the card. We've got a bit of a mixed bag of veterans and uh, some newer fighters with smaller sample sizes of stats in this week's event. Uh, So for the undercard, I'm going to stick to some fights where I think a, there's some betting value, and B, there's uh, you know, enough interesting numbers to dig into. But I'm obviously not going to let a small sample size stop me from talking about a matchup like Burns versus Kamaev, so uh, we will get deep into that one as well. But starting off on the undercard, the first fight I want to look at is a heavyweight bout between Alexei Olenek and Jared Vandera. When we're talking about Olenek, it's no surprise that we're looking at submissions, and we're also talking, you know, Olenek's stats, we're looking at longevity, I mean, 59 pro wins to his name, um, earned his first pro submission win in November 1996. That was just three years after UFC won. And if we look and contextualize that to early UFC fights, I mean, the, the next UFC card that happened after Olenek made his pro MMA debut uh, was Ultimate Ultimate 1996 with Don Fry uh, beating Mark Hall, uh, Gary Goodridge, Mark Hall, and Tank Abbott. So, you know, th- those are some of the names that were at the top of the sport when Olenek debuted. And, and here he is still in the UFC. And Obviously, his results haven't been great lately. I mean, when you see a 40-year-old, a 44-year-old on a three-fight losing streak, there's some room for concern. His longevity has been wildly impressive. It gives us tons of superlatives to talk about with him. But a three-fight losing streak, getting finished twice, you know, that's obviously going to raise some red flags. But it's definitely worth noting that, you know, that losing streak, I mean, getting knocked out by Derek Lewis, you know, never a good thing to be knocked out, of course, but... Also not the most worrying sign in the world. Um, and then the loss to Chris Daukas. I mean, uh, again, like he, he Daukas is coming off a couple losses, but he's definitely like a legit um, heavyweight prospect. And then the Sergei Spivak loss wasn't a pretty fight, but wasn't the kind of fight that you watch and say like, this dude needs to retire. This dude is clearly, you know, in danger of, of getting knocked out brutally in every single one of his fights. Obviously, that's in the cards in every heavyweight fight, but you know it was a 29-28 loss to Spivak, and and Olenek certainly kind of held his own in that one. When we're looking at his UFC numbers, you know there there aren't many big surprises. I think um, in most of his stats, so I'd say we look at his distance striking. Maybe surprising to some that that he does actually outland his opponents from distance. He lands 6.1 strikes per minute from distance, absorbs 5.9. That striking pace is honestly, I think, higher than you want to see if you're an Olenek fan, um, because with how good his submission game is, you don't necessarily want him engaging on the feet. You'd rather he kind of stay away, play it safe until he gets a shot at the takedown. Uh, but, you know, we've seen fighters who are too tentative on the feet who just can't get in on takedown attempts, and Olenek mixes that aggression with plenty of takedown volume. He averages 4.6 takedown attempts per 15 minutes, and for as good as his submission game is, his wrestling is on point too with a 47% takedown accuracy rate. I mean, there, there's a reason he's such a dangerous submission threat. If you have a great submission game but can't get the fight to the ground, probably not going to have a lot of success with it, but but for Olenek, that, that hasn't been a huge concern, honestly. The vast majority of his UFC losses have, have really just been when he's been finished before he was able to get a takedown. You know, we see the Overeem first round finish, the Walt Harris first round finish. Uh, Derek Lewis, he did actually take Lewis down. So kudos to Lewis for for surviving that one. Um, and then Daukas, again, finished him before he was able to get the takedown. Vandera comes into this one with the offensive striking stats to, to take advantage of Olenek's weakness in, in striking defense for sure. Uh, 45% distance striking accuracy rate, lands 5.8 distance strikes per minute. Um, we haven't really seen him show off his power in the UFC, but 
um, did win his contender series fight by TKO over Harry Hunsucker, um, has seven KO TKO wins in his career. That That's 58% of his pro wins have been by knockout or TKO, you know, 29 years old compared to 44 for Olenek. But the real concern for me is his 20% takedown defense rate. Now, I do want to add a little bit more context to that because really that comes from two fights. And one was against Alexander Romanov, who's looking like um, one of the best wrestling prospects in the division for sure. I mean, he's sporting a 65% takedown accuracy rate through four fights uh, with multiple takedowns landed in each of them. So giving up a big takedown performance there, not necessarily concerning, but Vandera was also taken down three times on three attempts and gave up eight and a half minutes of control time to Sergei Spivak in a fight where Spivak just outgrappled Vandera start to finish. And so while Linux may not be the same style of wrestler that's been able to kind of have their way with Vandera, I do think he's a strong enough wrestler to give him a really good shot if he can avoid getting knocked out early um, to to control this one and, and to ultimately get the submission win. So I like Olenek to win this fight. We've seen a little bit of odds movement. He opened as a slight underdog. By the time I'm recording this, Olenek is already a slight favorite at minus 115. Um, I like Olenek even at those odds. You know, even if we keep seeing things move in Olenek's favor, I, I like Olenek minus 115. Um, and the Olenek by submission prop at plus 165, I like it as well. Next fight I'm going to look at is Aspen Ladd against Raquel Pennington in the bantamweight division. Starting things out with the striking in this fight, we see Pennington with statistical edges, I mean, basically across the board, maybe in literally every stat uh, for distance striking. So we've got Pennington attempting 10.6 distance strikes per minute, so more aggressive than Ladd, who attempts 9.8. Pennington's more accurate, lands at 39% compared to Ladd's 33%. Pennington holds her opponents to 13.7 distance strike attempts per minute. Uh, Ladd also faces 13.7. You know, if we we look at the rounding there, it's actually 13.69 for Pennington, 13.74 for Ladd, so better for Pennington again. Uh, distance strike defense, we have Pennington at 70% compared to Ladd at 59%. So pace, opponent pace, accuracy, defense, Pennington, clean sweep across the board there. And when we look at how those all combine together, even though Pennington is getting outpaced by her opponents by a pretty pretty sizable margin, uh, she outlands them 4.11 landed per minute compared to 4.08 absorbed. So a a slight edge of 0.04 in her favor. Ladd gets outlanded by 2.38. She lands just 3.22 and absorbs 5.60 distance strikes per minute. So numbers all in Pennington's favor in the striking. Um, And ultimately when Pennington's combined together, she does kind of show out as a bit of a plus striker, right? She's, She's not super efficient, isn't as aggressive as you'd like, isn't super efficient offensively, that is. But her defense is really good at 70%, and she does land 9% more accurately than her opponent's. While Aspen Ladd lands at just 33%, while her opponents are landing at 41%. She's 8% less accurate than her opponents. All that is to say, when they're striking from distance, it's easy to favor Pennington here. So it comes down to whether or not Ladd can use her really strong offensive wrestling to win this fight. And we see Ladd averaging 3.2 takedown attempts per 15 minutes, so not a ton. But part of that low number is because she has been so effective at landing those takedowns of 46% accuracy rate and controlling her opponents with a 38.6% control rate, meaning 38.6% of her fight time has been spent in control positions on the ground or in the clinch. We do have to note though, we're still dealing with small samples for Aspen Ladd. She's only got six UFC fights to her name, um, has only attempted takedowns in four of them. Uh, You know, you can't fault her for finishing fights quickly or anything, but hasn't had a lot of time to show this this grappling 
Um, obviously, we saw at featherweight without the strength advantage, um, that takedown accuracy did not hold up, going 0 of 5 against Norma Dumont after landing six of her first eight takedown attempts uh, to start her UFC career. So, um, Lad, a good wrestler for sure, but against a big and strong opponent, certainly not uh, indestructible or, 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 I suppose, uh, undefeatable on that front. Pennington only has a 65% takedown defense rate in her UFC career, but it's worth noting that across her 15 fights, there have only been three instances where she's been taken down more than twice in a single bout, and that was against Amanda Nunes once, and then twice against Jessica Andrade. One of those fights, Andrade went three of eight, the other, Andrade went uh, four of five, obviously turned in a bit of a better performance there. But looking at those 10 takedowns, I mean, those are two-thirds of the takedowns she's allowed in her whole career, 66.7% of the takedowns in just 20% of her fights. To add on another layer of concern, though, even when she's not getting taken down, she does have a tendency to get controlled a lot more than you'd like, and that includes both in the clinch and on the ground. We've got 11 fights in her UFC career where she's faced at least two takedown attempts, And she's allowed an opponent control rate of at least 33.3% in six of those fights, allowing an opponent control rate of 29.7% across those fights. And honestly, if we expand out to her whole career, the opponent control rate of 24.4%, a little concerning as well. I came into analyzing this fight honestly expecting to like betting Pennington here. But when it comes down to it, I do think this one's actually maybe a little bit closer than the odds indicate. I mean, I I still like Pennington to win, but at minus 177, I I think that's too steep. I think there's a little bit of value on Ladd at plus 157 here. And this is one of those matchups where I think there's enough uncertainty here. I mean, if we see early on that Pennington stuffs a couple takedown attempts and doesn't get stuck in the clinch, you know, I think that's going to look end up looking like a very one-sided win for Pennington over 15 minutes. But there's also a world in which Ladd takes this one really handily. So I, I think this one should have close odds, not necessarily because closer odds, uh, not necessarily because it's going to be a closely contested fight, but because of the question marks around Ladd's offensive and Pennington's defensive wrestling, where you know the range of outcomes is so broad, but the average of outcomes perhaps is a little bit. Um, closer than than these odds would indicate. So one of those fights where I think there's a good chance that after it plays out, it looks like there was obviously one better side to the bet. Like either, you know, how could you have missed Pennington or how could you have missed Ladd? No way she should have been an underdog. Like I, I think there's a good chance we see the fight play out in a way that makes it look obvious after the fact. But as things stand right now with this uncertainty, I do think that this line should be closer together. So so give me a small play on, uh, on Aspen Ladd at plus 157. Next up, we're going to jump back uh, into my least favorite, the heavyweight division where uh, uncertainty reigns supreme. Uh, We're going to take a look at a matchup between Jairzinho Rosenstruck and Marcin Taibura. Rosenstruck's really a guy that it's hard, borders on impossible to get a good read on statistically. Because if we look at his fights, I mean, if, if we look at his stats overall... You're basically getting the story of what happened in three of his fights, because between the Cyril Gaon fight, the Alistair Overeem fight, and the Curtis Blades fight, we get uh, 75.9% of his overall UFC fight time. And what we saw in those fights was him getting controlled in the grappling. Um, Obviously, against Overeem, he did come back and win that fight, um... And he did stuff 80% of the takedown attempts he faced, but he gave up two takedowns on 10 attempts and gave up 8 minutes and 21 seconds of control time. 
Against Gone, he was taken down twice on 14 attempts, gave up four and a half minutes of control time. And against Curtis Blades, he was taken down three times on six attempts, gave up six minutes and 19 seconds of control time. And he was one and two in those fights. But that, I mean, that's not the story of his UFC career, because outside of that, we've seen him go four and one. And in those other fights, they were ending early. Uh, it, in general, uh, three of his finishes were in the first round. The, the Nganu loss also in the first round. And the Junior Albini fight only just barely made it out of the first round, ended in less than six minutes. So we've got, you know, the, the better part of his UFC career uh, in terms of uh, the better part being the longer amount of time coming from a sample of pretty poor fights for him. But the superior part, the part of his career that looks a lot better, which is when fights are ending inside the distance, don't have that chance to kind of play into the stats here. So when we look at Rosenstruck and see these poor defensive grappling numbers, we do have to take into account that they were against really good competition in general. Um, and ultimately, his takedown defense, you know, considering who he was facing, it, it held up pretty well. 75%, uh, you know, holding Overeem to 20%, uh, holding Cyril Gone to such a low rate. And even, I mean, giving up 50% to Curtis Blades is is fine. I mean, Blades is a guy who comes in uh, over 50% for his career, 53% takedown accuracy. So, again, it's 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 so hard to get a read on Jair Rosenstruck. And, and I mean, it, that's why I hate heavyweights. They, we, we so often see this from them where uh, so many of their fights end so early that the stats ultimately become a little bit unreliable. Now, if we get in and look at Marcin Taibura, we do see a guy who probably will try to take advantage of the defensive grappling potential deficiencies. He averages 4.7 takedown attempts per 15 minutes, 33% accuracy rate, 29.7% control rate, which is quite high considering that takedown volume isn't especially huge. And he's not going to want to strike with a guy who's got a 4.1% knockdown rate. That's 4.1% of Rosenstruck's standing significant strikes, and that's excluding leg kicks as well, have knocked his opponent down. So if he's hitting you with strikes on the feet other than leg kicks, you're expecting to see you're expecting to see someone get knocked down once every 24 strikes absorbed, basically. Tybur is a heavyweight with a ton of experience, though, and and you know you don't get to that point without facing a lot of guys who are big threats to knock you down and. You know, his style has held up well enough. I mean, a 60% uh, distance striking defense rate is pretty solid and, and has kind of kept him out of danger in a lot of his fights. But, you know, we've got the Augusto Sakai fight. We've got the Shamil Abdurahimov fight. We've got the Derek Lewis fight. Plenty of examples of, of Taibura just not being able to kind of stay safe long enough to use his grappling. So that makes this one such a crapshoot. Like the Lad Pennington fight, but kind of for different reasons, this one could look pretty obvious either way. Uh, but again, I think it's one that's relatively close. So I'll, I'll still favor Rosenstruck to win slightly. Um, but when we look at the betting lines, Taibura plus 130. You know, if there is some thin value in this fight, I do think it's on Taibura. Um, ultimately, don't love this fight from a betting standpoint. Uh, it, just so unreliable and so hard to deal with samples like like Rosenstruck when we're, when we're breaking down the numbers. Um, but you know, the biggest betting trend really that exists in this fight is that even at heavyweight, guys with knockdown rates as high as Rosenstrugs do tend to get overvalued by the betting markets. So, you know, if I'm if I'm placing a flyer on this one, which, you know, I am, I can't resist, um, it's on Taibura at plus 130. We're going to jump to the main card next, and the next fight I'm going to look at is Mackenzie Dern against Tisha Torres. 
This is another matchup that comes with a pretty obvious problem to solve, and that's can Mackenzie Dern get this fight to the ground where she can submit Tisha Torres? If, if we want to look at the striking stats, um, if, if you don't believe me that that's the, the comparison we're looking at here, even improved striking, maybe Mackenzie Dern still has a 29% distance strike accuracy rate uh, compared to a 61% defense rate over her UFC career. So she's landing uh, a uh, a full 10% less accurately than her opponents. And she gets outlanded by an average of um, just about 2.0 distance strikes per minute. Now, admittedly, the bulk of the striking in her UFC career has came against, come against Marina Rodriguez and Amanda Hibosh, um, two very good strikers. So, you know, n- not necessarily a, a big concern not to outstrike them. And But the other side of the coin is that her other two performances that included a lot of striking were against Virna Jandiroba and um, Ashley Yoder, probably among two of the worst strikers in the division. And, and Dern did outland them, but not by enough to, to be particularly exciting. I mean, Tisha Torres is no Marina Rodriguez on the feet. But she is a solid striker and has proven that against really good competition. I mean, she just outlanded Angela Hill over 15 minutes, outlanded Hill 127 to 73 from distance. Um, so Torres certainly closer to the uh, Rodriguez uh, school of striking than, than to the Ashley Yoder school. Um, and even if we consider, I mean, looking at Torres' entire UFC career, which includes decisions against... Rodriguez includes decisions against Yoni and Jacek and Jessica and Josh and 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 Wei Li Zhang and Rose Nama Yunus. I mean, I, I just listed off the four losses of Torres' UFC career. Her other nine fights were all wins, and and those are, I mean, that's a lineup of some of the best bantamweights uh, the the UFC women's division has ever seen. So. Torres still having a 45% accuracy rate and 69% defense rate and outlanding her opponents by 2.4 distance strikes per minute. Obviously very, very strong striking stats. But again, that, that's probably not the question you came in with. It, you know, you didn't come in asking, well, is Torres going to be able to outstrike Dern while, while it's on the feet? Yes. But is Dern going to be able to get this fight to the ground? I, and I mean, it's statistically, it's kind of the... Uh, the stoppable force against the movable object here, where we've got Mackenzie Dern with an 11% takedown accuracy rate against Tisha Torres with a 58% uh, takedown defense rate. And if we look at Dern's takedown performances, I mean, I, I, I know she only really needs one, but there's not been a good wrestling performance out of her. I mean, she went one of six against Ashley Yoder. Now, admittedly, that was her debut. Um, went 0 of six against Amanda Hibosh. Uh, 0 of 5 against Janjoba. Um, I mean, 0 of 1 against Cyphers, although she ended up subbing Cyphers, but who doesn't? Um, uh, and then beyond that, I mean, she went 1 of 8 against Rodriguez in her last fight, and 1 of 2 against against Nina Nunes. So that was really the, the one performance where her takedown numbers looked remotely good was against Nina Nunes. Um, you know, had 4 minutes of control time and, and won that one by submission uh, in a very Mackenzie Durham performance. Now, like I said, Torres' 58% takedown defense is, I mean, it's a concern any way you want to cut it. But I will say that, I mean, it it does seem to be improved lately. If we look at the Jessica Andrade fight, which was back in 2018, and and she's fought to five decisions and, and had six fights since then. In that Andrade fight, she gave up 10 takedowns on 12 attempts. But since then, she has a 77.8% takedown defense rate. You know, held, held Angela Hill, obviously not 
the most accomplished wrestler in the world, but held Hill to two of seven. Um, stuffed the only attempt she faced from Sam Hughes, held Brianna Van Buren to two of seven, uh, held Marina Rodriguez to one of four. Uh, Zhang Weile got her down twice, but that was on eight attempts. So Torres' defensive wrestling has generally held up lately. And the other factor we want to consider here is takedowns that don't necessarily register as attempts, where you know, someone's maybe not attempting takedowns because they just can't get in on a takedown attempt. Uh, the the classic fights I like to use are Cynthia, Cal- Cynthia Calvillo fights. Uh, when she's getting pieced up on the feet, we often only see her registering one or two takedown attempts. And if you watch the fight, it's it's not that she doesn't want to, it's just that she can't even get close enough to attempt a takedown. Now, that hasn't been the case with Torres' recent opponents. Like I said, I mean, Angela Hill got in on seven attempts. Hill, obviously not a great wrestler, but that's not a fight where Torres' primary concern is is keeping it standing. As a really efficient distance striker, her her footwork could, you know, play into this takedown defense in, in a way that doesn't necessarily show in the wrestling stats. Um, and, and the big edge and the striking capability it can play out in, in the grappling. So combining that improved recent takedown defense at 77.8%, with the improved footwork, which also, I mean, it, even if she's not avoiding all takedown attempts, right, if she can keep this one standing kind of long enough, you know, maybe Dern gets a takedown, but there's not enough time left in a round for her to get to the submission. Obviously, she can submit you really quickly, but that's not always the case, right? Against Nina Nunes, she worked for four minutes before locking up the submission. So if Torres can keep some distance here, which I, I think she will be able to, and maybe stop a couple of takedowns, I I, I like Torres in this one, and I I, I think it's... Uh, you know, a, another one of those matchups, right? If Dern gets in and lands a takedown 60 seconds into the fight, we know how it's going to look. But if Dern isn't able to get in on a takedown, it's going to look really one-sided the other way. Um, ultimately, I like Torres to pull off what I guess betting markets are calling a slight upset here. Um, give me Torres to win and give me Torres at plus 105 as well. Next up, welterweight matchup between Gilbert Burns and Hamzat Kamaev. Obviously dealing with very small sample sizes for Kamayev. Uh, he does a four UFC fights to his name, but it's only 12 minute and 54 second sample. Uh, it's actually the fifth most octagon time, or fifth least octagon time that is needed to reach four wins for anyone in UFC history. Or I should say in the UFC unified rules era. So going back to UFC 32, I think. And obviously we don't really need to go much deeper than his stats are absurdly dominant, but it, it's kind of fun highlighting these you know, historically good small sample sizes. So let's look at a few things here. First of all, he spent 92.5% of his UFC fight time holding control positions. Uh, He's got a 67% distance strike accuracy rate and a 67% takedown accuracy rate. 50% of the significant strikes he's landed on the feet have resulted in knockdowns. Uh, 75% distance striking defense rate. And he has a significant strike ratio that's landed divided by absorbed of 112 to 1 over his first four UFC fights. If we look at the whole UFC Unified Rules era again, the next best anyone has ever posted through their first four fights. So again, this is still like other people can benefit from small samples here. 112 to 1 for Kamayev is number one. Second place is only about a tenth of that. <laughs> Matt Hughes at 11.3 to 1. We've got Phil Davis at 11 to 1. Tatiana Suarez at 6.6 to 1. Cain Velasquez 5.9 to 1. Leoto Machida 5.5 to 1. And nobody's even come remotely close. Without 
a good sample of stats on on Kamaev to compare Burns to. There's, uh, I don't know how much value there is kind of digging into his specific numbers, but um, to give you some context, Burns hasn't been especially statistically impressive over his UFC career. Um, from distance, he's been outlanded by about 0.4 strikes per minute, uh, lands 1% less accurately than his opponents, gets outpaced slightly, 1.1% uh, knockdown rate, but a 1.5% knockdown rate against. Uh, 37 takedown, 37% uh, takedown accuracy rate, 50% takedown defense rate. Hasn't generally faced, I mean, hasn't faced a lot of takedown attempts uh, overall, and also hasn't faced a lot of opponents who have any interest in taking him down or who he really needs to bother defend, putting a lot of effort in defending takedowns against. I mean, he, he faces only 1.4, uh, 1.5 takedown attempts per 15 minutes. And there's only been one instance in his UFC career where an opponent attempted more than two takedowns against him. That fight, I think, is it's kind of an interesting one to look at because Michelle Prezeresh took him down five times on seven attempts. And that's an opponent who, uh, despite the weight class, you know, bigger and stronger, more physical than Burns. Uh, and Prezeresh went on to win a 30-27 unanimous decision victory. All three judges had it scored that way. Um, so that, that looks concerning, right? Burns taken down five times on seven attempts. Uh, against a stronger opponent. But I mean, first of all, that was so long ago. I mean, that was September 2016. And the other thing that's interesting to look at is even though Prezeros took him down five times on seven attempts, he only had 69 seconds of control time. So, I mean, I obviously like the minus 550 favorite Kamayev to win this fight, but it, it comes down to whether Burns is a live underdog at all in this one or not. And Without any real good samples of stats, it's it's hard to draw on that from from a numbers angle, um, and even trying to look at betting trends. I mean, if you've been listening to the show for long, you know I love fading the hype. I mean, hyped up prospects coming in on a winning streak uh, are one of one of my favorite bets. Betting against them, that is, um, you know, the the Johnny Walker against Corey Anderson kind of spots, and trends why like looking at the betting trends those are really good opportunities i mean guys who are heavy favorites coming off of early wins especially early in their ufc career really tend to get overrated fading them is is a really profitable approach but kamayev is is even among those types of fighters he's an aberration right he's he's just such a unique fighter in terms of how dominant he's been these aren't i mean other than maybe like the gerald mearshart fight like the, these aren't bouts where you know, he's knocking someone out before we can see if it looks like he's clearly better. Like, it, it, it's not like he just happens to land a couple of strong power shots that end fights early and and we don't see quite how good he is. So I'm a little bit less excited to fade him than I usually would be a fighter in this spot. Um, but ultimately, I, I mean, uh, with a smaller bet than I might make otherwise because of how hard it is to even read into the trends here, but I, I, I'm really small on, on Gilbert Burns plus 425 this week. I hate fun. I love fading the hype. So <laughs> give me Gilbert Burns. And next up, we are in the bantamweight division for a title fight rematch between Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan. This is kind of a fun spot because not only do we have big sample sizes on both guys, but we have almost 20 full minutes um, of them fighting each other to look at the stats for. So if we look at their UFC careers, the, the first thing that should stand out and, and might kind of surprise you is that Aldermain Sterling's distance striking numbers are actually really close to Yan's and in some ways better. Uh, their accuracy is really close, 43% Sterling, 45% uh, for Yan. Uh, their defense numbers are close. Distance striking defense rate of 67% for Sterling, 64% for Yan. 
And with Aljo outpacing his opponents, 14.7 to 10.1 attempts per minute, he outlands his opponents by 2.93 per minute. Uh, Yan only outlands his opponents by about half a distance strike per minute. But one thing that skews stats in a big way when we're looking at distance striking can be a, a difference in leg kick rate. Leg kicks are over twice as accurate as a typical distance strike, and Aljamain Sterling has thrown leg kicks on 15.4% of his distance strike attempts, compared to just 5.7% for Yan. If we remove leg kicks, Sterling's distance strike accuracy falls to 37.3%, while Yan's doesn't move a whole lot, 42.9%. That kind of differential in the types of strikes they throw is also really highlighted at a career level in their knockdown rates. Aljamain Sterling has never scored a knockdown in the UFC. And of the over 1,000 fighters who have stepped foot in the octagon at least once and never scored a knockdown, uh, Sterling's 900 significant strikes landed are the second highest total. Yan, on the other hand, already holds the bantamweight record for knockdowns landed with 10. And we, we really see that uh, on a micro level play out in their first fight, where Sterling actually did outland Peter Yan, 97 to 86 insignificant strikes. Um, and leg kick numbers were even close, but Yan did outland him 48 to 40 insignificant head strikes. And I mean, watching the fight, Yan obviously was landing with a lot more power, had the knockdown, a lot more impact in his strikes, and, and kind of highlights where Aljamain Sterling is one of those fighters where a high volume number doesn't necessarily tell you as much as it would with a typical fighter. His style is kind of almost pushes that volume to beyond where volume stats really can capture what's going on in the fight. The other concern in that first fight was that Sterling, who um, you know probably has the grappling edge uh, if he were able to get the dominant positions, uh, he went one of 17 on his takedown attempts, and Peter Yan went seven of seven. So, I mean, all this to say... Uh, it's hard not to love Peter Yan to win this fight, and there's a reason he's such a massive favorite. If I were to bet this fight, I would lean Sterling, but ultimately I think I'm staying away. I think it's priced pretty fairly, but what comes to my mind for me is just the reaction Sterling has received since the last fight. I mean, he was in, I think ESPN published like a top 20 pound for pound, and Sterling was on there, and like one of the most popular comments on Instagram was like mocking that Sterling was on there. Sterling's really good. I mean, if obviously his last fight against Yan was really one-sided, and, and I think that's more an indication of how good Peter Yan is than uh, a weakness from Sterling. I mean, to me, Sterling is a guy who... I have him up there, like, on the Robert Whitaker tier of, like, one of the best non... I mean, technically he's a champion right now, but kind of best non-champions in the UFC. Um, he's not the champion because Peter Yan is so good. Or, or he may not be the champion after this fight because Peter Yan is so good. But Sterling is legit, and I think the public perception is kind of skewed so far against him at this point that if there's any kind of bias heading into the betting line here, um, I would think that that's kind of skewing in Yan's favor. So, you know, if I'm going to bet this fight, it's on Sterling. But ultimately, I think like a fight where we have big sample sizes on both guys, where they just fought each other for 20 minutes, where there wasn't really anything kind of until the end, there wasn't anything like random and freakish about the fight. You know, the betting markets are going to be pretty sharp in a spot like this. So I'm not super excited to bet on it. I, I probably won't place the bet ultimately. But it, like I said, if I'm betting, it's Sterling. Um, but of course, to pick straight up, I, I like Peter Yan to win. Uh, and then sticking with our theme of lopsided betting markets this week, we've got Alexander Volkanovsky in the main event against Chan Sung Young. 
Um, Volkanovski opened at minus 400, and this was a really interesting spot where he actually spent, I mean, almost a couple months in that kind of minus 400, minus 500 range before some serious line movement at the end of March brought him down to like minus 700, minus 900 now. A move that sudden and dramatic and a ways out from the fight, but not close to when the market opened is always a little bit eye-catching. Like there might be some injury news in, in the Chan Sung Jung camp that we don't know about or, or something along those lines. But but it's also, I think, a fair line movement, even looking at this in a vacuum. Um, I, I don't think minus 400 was ever the right place to open this. Um I got him personally, I think it was like minus 470, minus 485 or something um, with an early bet. But uh, the market obviously has, has really kind of caught up to this fight. And, and um, so let's kind of get get into the numbers here. And the first thing that stands out is Volkanovski's significant strike numbers in general are just so good. I mean, even though he has spent 50 minutes fighting against Max Holloway, he has the highest significant strike differential per minute. So that's landed minus absorbed per minute in UFC featherweight history. Uh, looking at his distance striking numbers, 53% accuracy and 62% defense. I mean, that is absurd. Uh, you see someone landing over 50% very, very rarely. And when they do, it's usually someone who over a small sample is kind of brawling in the pocket with like a 45% defense rate. But Volk's opponents land at 38% while he's landing at 53%. Now, like Sterling, we have to take into account leg kick rate here. Volkanovski is one of the highest leg kick rates in the UFC. Almost 30% of the distance strikes he attempts are leg kicks. But even if we remove leg kicks, his accuracy rate stays at 43.2%. So still landing about 5% more accurately than his opponents. Um, and if we look at Chan Sung Jung without leg kicks, he's at 35.6% accuracy. And he's only got a 56% distance striking defense rate. I mean, yes, we've got high level of competition to think about for for Korean Zombie a lot, but you know when we're looking at Alex Volkanovski, like we're we're not talking other people getting high competition here when he spent 50 minutes striking with Holloway. Like if we're if we're adjusting for competition, you know we're not going to use that as a negative on Volkanovski. So we've got Volkanovski with the far better efficiency numbers, the higher pace, um, knockdown rates a little bit higher for Chan Sung Jung, but at 1.11% still. Uh, certainly not through the roof or anything, and, and at 0.77% for Volkanovski, you know, not too far behind. And if we look at the grappling, obviously Chan Sung Jung, dangerous submission game, but it doesn't even average one takedown landed per 15 minutes. You know, 15% control rate doesn't grapple much. Volkanovski, 1.8 takedowns landed per 15, almost 25% of his fight time in control position. But the other thing that's really interesting here is something that I call control dominator rate which is basically the share of total um, grappling in someone's fight where they've been in control. We see Volkanovski at 87.8%, while Chan Sung Jung is still over 50%, so has a higher control rate than his opponents, but just 57.3%. So statistically, it, it's really easy to see why Volkanovski is a huge favorite. Um, love him to win this fight, but man, minus 900 is tough. I mean, you know, we... I think it's so hard because such a big portion of Volkanovski's career against top competition is against Max Holloway, who is, you know, at, at the top, I think, of that grouping of, like, the Whitaker of the Aljamain Sterling kind of group of guys who are, like, incredible but not champions. Max Holloway, probably the best one in the group. So, I mean, Volkanovski, 
hasn't necessarily always looked like that minus 1000 champion, the, you know, the Demetrius Johnson lines, the George St. Pierre lines, um, other than in the Ortega fight, but Ortega's a guy I'm lower on probably than most people. So, um, you know, that 50-44, 50-45 kind of thing that he put on there did look like a minus 1000 champ kind of tends to look, but not necessarily against great competition. And, and I mean, we don't have a lot of recent Volkanovski sample outside of, outside of those matchups. Last fight before that was 2019 against Aldo. And, you know, that was one-sided as well. So, I mean, I'm trying to talk myself into betting this on one side or the other, but ultimately I think I'm just staying away. I, I hate not having a, a real strong betting stance on, on the fun big fights, but I, I think our, our lines are pretty good this week as far as the, the Burns-Kamaev and, and the Sterling-Yan fight go. And the Volkanovski, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's obviously warranted that he's a huge favorite, but minus 900 is getting so steep and... and you know, as a small factor as well, the the weird timing and suddenness of that movement from kind of 490 to 700 over a couple days, uh, that that says that there could be something going on. I'm not trying to read tea leaves here, but that also does suggest that there could be something going on, you know, health-wise, maybe in the Chan Sung Jung camp, which makes, obviously, would make things a lot harder to, um, to handicap this fight without that knowledge. So, uh, you know, not a fun spot, but I, I, I don't have a bet here um, in the main event. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the less sexy fights on the lower on the card are where I think there's the betting value this week. Um, but that does it for this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, really thrilled to be back with, with uh, shows two weeks in a row. Uh, really appreciate your patience while I was taking, uh, you know, a pretty big break between recording and, and really thankful for uh, everyone who's who's tuned in. Um, so enjoy the fights this week and good luck on your bets.